My name is Bonnie Landry. I'd like to welcome you to my podcast with my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, where we explore the questions about homeschooling and family life and how we can make joy normal. Tony Box is a screen-free listening device developed for children. Uh, it can be used by children who are very young, uh, three and up, used easily. My grandkids are using it. I'm watching them enjoy it and gain from it. It's it's virtually a kid-proof product, could be bounced down the stairs. It's a box covered with foam and fabric layers, something that your, your toddlers could handle, and you wouldn't have to worry about their safety or the safety of the device either. Tony Box was developed by two fathers who were trying to find a way for kids their own kids to experience storytelling and stimulation of their imagination in a really magical way and primarily in a screen-free way. So Tony Box was born from that idea and it's something that I think is a, a remarkable product. I'm so grateful for Tony Box's support of this podcast. Good afternoon, Elizabeth. So nice to see you. Good to see you. It's been a little while. <laughs> you look cozy and we're looking like you're ready for whatever life brings us in this moment. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Just trying to stay warm at this point. <laughs> oh, that's great. So you are bringing with you some questions that I know nothing about. So that's good. Yes. I'd rather not know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Let's it. do that. Okay. So my first question has been kind of on my heart for a little while. And I think we've touched on this maybe in like our first season, but maybe it's time to bring it back. And I was wondering if there's a correct order to homeschooling. And what I mean by that is I know that for math, you teach counting before adding, you know, one plus one is two. Or, you know, kids need to know their letters before they can start reading. But what about for other subjects? Like science, for example, can you teach weather before learning about forces of motion? You know, or like history books, do you have to right. go in the order or can like today I was like, can we just learn about George Washington today? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good question because I think that we've been so formed by our own schooling that in grade two, you learn X and in grade three, you learn X. What What's really important to remember is that every school, every state, every province, every country is has their own schedule of things, particularly around social studies and science. And it's not the same as every other country, right? So every other state, private school might choose to, to roll things out differently than a public school. And so, no, those things, it really, really doesn't matter. And I think that what's why we're so blessed when we homeschool our kids is because we can really be interest-led. So when our kids are really, really into something, it's usually, you know, that often rolls around our older kids. Say, for example, our kids are really, really into the Revolutionary War. Then, you know what? Okay, let's just, let's just do Revolutionary War until you're worn out of it. And that might be a week and it might be two years. My first two years of homeschooling, I said we did a two-year unit study on dinosaurs <laughs> because my daughter was just totally enthralled with dinosaurs and it never went away. Like it took two years before she finally sort of got past the dinosaur stage and started to be more interested in other things as her primary sort of sciencey thing, right? Yes, of course, math is, it's not so much um, the information, but the skills that need to be built because you build one skill builds on another, which I think is what kind of what you're talking about and language as well. One skill yeah. builds on another. But once a child has learned to read, then we have a lot more freedom to say, for example, 
if you wanted to do a poetry segment with your kids as, as part of their English, if you wanted to do do a play with them, if you wanted to do speech arts, if you wanted to delve into a, a novel, a character studies and things like that, the order of those things doesn't really matter. But in terms of the skill of learning how to read and learning to understand the structure of language, there's a certain amount of skill in that. But of course, children attain that very young. And so then we have the freedom in our, what we would call the subject English, we have the freedom to to basically do whatever we want. And, you know, most most people are going to revisit those things over and over again, right? So say, for example, with English, say you decide to do a, a poetry segment or a grammar section with your kids, you're probably going to revisit that mm-hmm. three years down the road, four years down the road, five years down the road. We tend to revisit things every few years. And so it is with science and with social studies that we, every few years, three, four, five years, we revisit the same things. And we do that at a different level. It's interesting because as my kids got older, you know, as they were approaching high school and they started doing more things on their own, they would do like a history or a social studies on their own and a science on their own that was more like a high school course, you know, and they had quizzes and whatnot that it was a complete course. But they still continue to do what we did as a family because there was it was something really enjoyable so because we were doing that around the table they would just continue and even you know I used to laugh because my kids would come home from college and I would be reading a novel or something to my kids and they would sit and listen (laughs) kind of remembering what that was like when when they were doing that and even adding a more adult perspective on things right yeah yeah right now I'm reading um just in bits and pieces I don't know if you've heard of the Summa Domestica I can't remember I just heard about it yeah it sounds fabulous. I ordered it as a birthday present to me, kind of. And <laughs> I think it's it's something that some people will be very, like, not happy with and then others mm-hmm. because it is kind of about homemaking and, you know, being stay-at-home mom and homeschool, you know, like, things that are frowned upon these days, mm-hmm. you know, and that yes. education section, um, she was talking about how, you know, People, even a hundred years ago, there's this idea that they were not well read and educated. And that's not, that's just not true. It's even, you know, slaves would have the ability to read because even some slave owners wanted, you know, them to bookkeep for them or, you know, stuff like that. This idea that we Mm -hmm. need just piles and piles of curriculum to teach is just not so because you know, a hundred years ago, a mom taught her kids how to read with very basic knowledge of Mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the only book in the house was a Bible, right? Yeah. And that was just very kind of empowering to me, I think, because I didn't go to school Mm -hmm. to learn how to be an educator and we did choose homeschooling. And there are some Mm -hmm. times where I just feel like because I have in my head my education growing up, which wasn't a great one, let's be mm-hmm. honest. But it's the, you know, 8 to 3 p.m., you know, school day and with a 20-minute lunch and a 20-minute reset. How was I there for so many hours? And I can't really tell you what I learned. <laughs> yeah. And and sad to think that we're we're not confident going ahead teaching our own children you know, that system, poor as it was for for most of us, we learn to read. <laughs> but other than the basic things, most of us don't really remember a lot of 
of what we learned in school. And it's funny that we look at ourselves with our enthusiasm and with all the resources we have and, you know, what we're able to do. And we're worried that we can't do it well enough. Right. 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 Yeah. And well, and I think that it's just the market is saturated with with curriculums. It's like everybody has tried to develop their own curriculum. And somebody like me, it's kind of like, I don't what's the best one? Maybe some of the old, mm -hmm. old, old school stuff is better than what's being put out there now. Mm hmm. Yeah, you got to wonder, you know, and I don't think I mean, I think there are some very good curriculum around. I think it's important to question when you actually need curriculum. So much of our schooling can be yeah. done without it with a decent set of encyclopedias and lots of good books on our shelves, which almost all of us are book addicts, right as homeschool moms. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I say curriculum loosely, I'm thinking about like, I'm not great with science. So I grabbed a science book for third grade for this year mm -hmm. to help kind of guide our our learning and stuff. And, you know, there are tons of science books. How do you know which one is going to work? And actually the science book I have, um, a friend of mine is like, oh, we use that. I don't like that science curriculum. And I was like, I like it. <laughs> so it's just. Yeah. Well, that's it. Right. Sometimes it's just taste. Every science curriculum out there that's decent is going to at least have an explanation of the scientific method, you know, and they might not even use that term, but they're going to explain about wondering and making a guess and collecting yeah. information. You know, they're going to talk about all the aspects of the scientific method. You know, up until you get to high school, if as long as you're exposing to them to those ideas, even if you're not using the right lingo, it doesn't really matter. It's good for them to for people to learn that eventually that there is a there's an actual method that right. we lay out, the scientific method and, and why and when we need to use that. But let's not kill the wonder that children naturally have. Because children live in the scientific method. They their whole life is spent wondering, guessing, sorting, applying information they've gained and, and experimenting and, and using information they've gained already to try something new, you know, and, and I mean, they're just always doing that, you know, as children are scientists. So many things do not have to be on a certain timeline, right? I, if I can share, it was kind of a win today. We took off December and then we're going to get right back into it beginning of January. Well, then three out of five of my kids ended up sick. And in bigger families, illness is not just a couple days. It's usually weeks because <laughs> it just goes through everybody. Mm -hmm. So we're just really now getting back into it. So today I sat down with my seven-year-old to talk about verbs. And he remembered and grasped it right away and figured it out. And and then I asked my 10-year-old who had been upstairs playing with Legos and he came down and I said, do you know what a verb is? And he didn't give like exact definition, but he described to me what his understanding was. And he was right. And I was like, okay, great, cool. cool. Let's talk about pronouns now. <laughs> and I was like, do you know what it is? And they each gave me an example. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm doing something right. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's awesome. And I think I was so worried that they didn't know those things because we I don't teach it directly. In the yeah. Order that I was taught in school, you know, like there was never a sit down and today's lesson is this, you know, it was just kind of here and also Mad Libs. Oh, Mad Libs That's are amazing. 
I should put a link to Mad Libs in the show notes because if if parents have not come across them yet, they're just so fantastic. So they're they're like a pre-made yeah, story. Yeah. There'll be a whole like pad, say, of 30 different stories and they'll have blanks in them. So they're meant to be funny. It'll just say under the blank, it will say noun or pronoun or verb or verb ending with ing. Kids go and fill in the blanks and then without knowing what the story is, and then you read the story, you know, which of course is funny because they don't actually know what the story is uh, until you go to read it out to them. So yeah, very, very funny. Institute for Excellence in Writing, their their writing um, program, of course, is such an awesome way. If you've missed anything, they will get it because you go through all those things with the writing program, you know, when when they're actually needing to know what those words are in order to add them into their writing sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, it's cool. I was going to ask you something. Oh, no, I was going to share a story with you actually just talking about sickness and kids. One time when... I think we had six kids. My oldest daughter would have been maybe 15 or 16. And we got a flu went through our household and we all got sick. She was the first one to get sick. And then everybody else got sick after. So, you know, days later when we're all still, all the people are throwing up and all the people are sick and, and she's the one who's, um, who's better. And I guess she heard me at two in the morning or something, getting up with kids or whatever. And we'd gone through like every linen in the house and everything. So I guess she she just knew this was a problem. And I'd done a couple loads of laundry that day. And she came upstairs with this big stack of towels and linens for me and just and just handed it to me and said, I thought you might be needing these because people were still throwing up all over the place. And it was like, oh I love Aww. you. Thank you so much. So Sickness in the big family. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh it's the word. I don't know, just on that note, at least here in Michigan, I had to call the pediatrician for my daughter because the stomach flu, especially in small kids, it's like a 24-hour thing and they're fine, Mm -hmm. right? Well, my daughter, who's three, it took five to seven days for her to get over it. I called the pediatrician and I was like, "What what do I do? I've never seen it last this long. And the nurse on the phone told me that in her 13 years as a nurse, she has never seen stomach flu this bad. As the one that was going around your community. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So if any other moms and dads are dealing with this, I know what that is like. And I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when you only have small kids. It's just so hard. Just days and days of not sleeping. And you just want them to run around and get into things again because that's them. You know, the laying in bed helpless is not, it's so sad. Yeah. So I'm going to circle back to the question about just about in which order do we do things. So in terms of almost everything, from from the point of reading onwards, everything in English, it doesn't really matter when you approach it, right? And there, there, I will, there will be people who will disagree with that. But that's okay. I mean, I've seen it in my own life and hundreds of people that I know, if you teach what a verb is before you teach what a noun is, or if you teach what, you know, how to use a comma before how to use a semicolon, it just doesn't matter that much to me when the child is asking the questions. What is that for? That's the time to to uh, capitalize on that, right? So if they ask the questions in the, you know, so-called wrong order... <laughs> So, I, I mean, I think because I've known you well enough and long enough to know what your response might be, but what about the benefit of, you know, following a curriculum book is that you're not going to miss something, right? You're going to teach adjective, adverb, verb, noun, pronoun, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. But the fly by the seat of your pants way, it leaves 
room for maybe leaving something out. And maybe the the um, language arts is not a good example because right. you're using it every day and you're eventually going to notice, oh, wait, that's an adverb. I should teach that. But like in, in other mm-hmm. areas like science or history, I mean, you're not going to touch on everything right. in homeschooling. because there's right. Yeah. Just to qualify, I never fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it might appear that way or it might sound that way, but I have a, I have an idea of what it is I want to do. And having it be child-led doesn't mean I'm flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> In case that's mis- misunderstood, yeah. Sometimes I fly by the seat of my yes. pants. I'll clarify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what if you forget something? Okay, so so let's just sort of put something beside that. Say you use a very comprehensive curriculum that covers everything, whether it's age appropriate or not for language arts, that it's just, we just cover every aspect of language so that you know that in grade four, you covered it all. That does not mean your child's going to learn it all. You might forget things. There's always holes in our education. doesn't matter how good of an education we've had. There's always holes in it. There's also holes in understanding. When we could have the most perfect curriculum, the most comprehensive curriculum in front of us, and there still could be things that that child won't pick up on because their brain's not ready or they don't care. You know, they're disinterested or they're distracted or whatever. Again, circling back and recognizing that maybe there's some something that they're not missing. And you're, you're going to know that when they say with language arts, you know that they're they're going to start writing. Maybe you pick up on the fact that, oh, they don't really understand where a period goes or they don't really understand how to use an adverb. They don't really understand whatever. And, or maybe they don't understand what a paragraph is. They're not really getting this. It's just important to know that when those moments happen, because you're working so closely with your child, you can't, they can't fall through the cracks in the same way that they could with 30 other kids in a classroom, right? And a teacher that's stretched to way beyond her, any, you know, realistic human limits. If that's the case, you're going to pick up on it and be able to correct it at the time. Or as your kids, you know, you're not there yet, but as your kids get older and they start doing things a lot more on their own, either they are going to show you something they've written, it's going to be apparent that there's a gap, or they're going to realize it themselves. Hey, wait a sec. I don't actually know how to use a thesaurus. Hey, wait a sec. How how do I know when to start a new paragraph? How do I make an outline? I don't know how to do that. Okay. Uh, Okay. That was That's a gap. So either you did it already and they didn't pick up on it, or you missed it and now is your time to revisit it. We're going to get to adulthood and there will be holes in our education. Education is a lifelong thing. I'll use vocabulary as an example because as an adult, I would say every day I come across words. If you you know you want to challenge yourself in your reading and at different phases of your life, that comes in different ways. So as a mom with a bunch of little kids, I wasn't challenging myself really hard to to read things that were beyond me. I was mostly reading things to my kids. I was tried to always read to myself in some way. I wouldn't have read something really pithy because it would have been too hard. But then kids grow up and you start to sort of be interested or want to read more challenging things or listen to more challenging things. In that comes a broadening of your vocabulary, right? You can't help but broaden your vocabulary by your, you know, even if you're just reading children's historical fiction. You will be broadening your uh, your vocabulary, but you know as you get older and as the kids grow up, you'll be doing that more and more because you're doing it alongside them, and then even you know beyond what you've done as a homeschool mom. We don't ever stop learning. I think you'd have to be pretty actively trying to not learn something in order for education to be a right, done deal, right? right. <laughs> well, 
then to that, to the next question, I've been seeing a lot people taking issue with, I guess, the way spelling words used to be, this idea that you're just memorizing instead of really learning, I guess, the the spelling rules, which is really tough in the English language. What are your thoughts on that? Because I, I have some of my kids are mm-hmm. notoriously poor at spelling. Part of me is like, let's just get a spelling list and work on a spelling list. But then I see all these people saying, right. you know, no, that's not the way to do things. Memorization is not going to help them read and excel mm-hmm. in spelling in the future. So what are your thoughts on that? Interestingly, of my kids, I have seven kids, six of them are excellent spellers. One is not and knows he isn't. And so he was the one that I stopped doing dictation with the earliest, probably when he was about 12. And I believe, and I could be mistaken, right? I mean, seven's a pretty good sample size, but it's not a hundred kids. I could be mistaken that maybe there was just something in his brain that just, you know, there's a caring that has to happen, that things are spelled correctly and that you want, you desire that. But I've always felt that dictation was such a a positive way to approach spelling because you're looking at language all the time and you're teaching phonics in context. You're teaching spelling rules in context and you can compare it and you can make funny games out of it and you can there's so much you can do with teaching spelling in a really innate natural way without there being a spelling list what i do know is that i used to think because i was always a good speller i used to think well obviously it's just you're good at it or you're not right or if you're a reader then but now i know voracious readers who can't spell i also know people who spent their childhood doing spelling lists and also can't spell they could get 100 on the list and then the next day, not remember how the word is spelled anymore. So that's an interesting paradigm. Now, there could be some kids, you could do a spelling list every week, they memorize them, and they have it for life. So a few years ago, several years ago now, Andrew Pudawat happened to be over here on the island, and he was doing a talk on spelling. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it's one you can get on the IEW website. I think it's just called spelling, or it might have a subtitle or whatever. I'll, I'll see if I can find him in the show notes. He was doing this talk on spelling and suddenly it really opened my eyes about why dictation is really a good way to learn to spell. So there's different, he was saying, he was explaining, there's different ways we learn things. One of the ways is by intense repetition over a short period of time. The other is by less intense repetition over a long period of time. One of the ways is through humor. We remember things through humor and we remember things when they're (laughs) fear-based. Okay. So those were, there's probably other ways, but those were the things he was talking about. Obviously, okay, no, we're not going to hit our child when they don't spell the word, right? So it's not, we're not going to do fear-based, although that has been tried through history and it probably was effective. (laughs) Okay. But we're not going to go there. But I thought, okay, with dictation, you do intense for short period of time and less intense for long period of time. And I used a lot of humor with my kids, right, to help them understand, to help them remember certain words and how they're spelled, especially words that were hard to remember. That was really helped me to sort of look at, okay, why does dictation work? Why, why is it good? Why is it effective for spelling? I thought, okay, well, those, all three of those methods are employed in dictation because sometimes you focus on a word and you, you know, might focus on it for a few days in a row, focus on a word or a, or a type of word. 
you know, maybe an OU word and you go through all the OU words that make an ow sound and you go over that and over that and over that. Then you also do it every time an ow sound comes up. You talk about that. Oh, look, that's the OU. That's that ow sound. Remember, OW also says that. You know, you just chat about it. And then you also use, uh, you know, funny, you might draw a funny face out of the O and the U, or you might make some, you know, silly joke with your kids that you have that you use repeatedly. You know, the one I used, I used many over the years with my kids, but I said, you, you fried your friend. So your friend, friend is fried with the N taken out. They all remembered how to spell friend because I would use that phrase while I fried my friend, right? (laughs) You know, and it was just silly, but we had lots of silly little things like that, that, that became the little clues that my kids would remember uh, how to spell things. That that was very uh, enlightening for me to to uh, sort of have somebody kind of put their finger on why why this is working. That talk might even be on YouTube. I'll look for it. But that it's a really good talk because he starts off by saying spelling is just memorizing a whole bunch of unrelated random bits of information, <laughs> which is so true, right? The English language is ridiculous. I still trip up on words. And, yeah. you know, I always make a point to tell my kids, oh, I need to look up how to spell this so that they know that it's, it. you're still, you're learning forever, kind of, mm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I have one especially who gets really um, worked up about doing things right the first mm-hmm. time. And so it's really important for me to show him my humanity, even as an adult and mm-hmm. me, you know, failing, but working to improve, right? You mm-hmm. know, not just giving up, but exactly. Yeah. 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 And we found that um, with our kids, like they, because we use dictation and then for a number of years, we would, we would, you know, a year or two, I would usually overlap dictation and, and write paragraph writing. I found that the kids, because they'd use a model for dictation, all that time and they knew that there was a correct way to spell things and a correct way to structure things that they would actually come to me and self-edit so I didn't I rarely needed to say that's actually incorrect they would come to me and say can you make sure this is spelled correctly or can you make sure this is right or did I put the punctuation in the right place they would self-edit because they used a model that they knew there was a right way to do something. And so that's a great discussion point for kids too, is like, Mm -hmm. it would be correct to do this or this. But in terms of say something like punctuation, you could do it this way, or you could do it this way, depending on the, on the emphasis that you'd like to place on this. And so it's a great opportunity to sort of teach, you know, the use of punctuation or the use of language. Mm -hmm. Uh, What word do I want to start with? Do I want to start with? Because, you know, we learned in school, never start a sentence with the word because. (laughs) <laughs> just one of those rules that really stuck in my head and of course you can start a sentence with a clause but you have to frame the rest of the sentence right. correctly but that was just one of those rules that was a blanket yeah. rule I guess the teacher or teachers at that time just thought easier to just say never start a sentence with because <laughs> right right so if I may because um my seven-year-old actually really does love dictation and I've been really bad at keeping up with it and it's because I get this brain fog about what to pull from, right? So we have hundreds of books in our house. I mean, based on what you've said is you could take something from anything. I have a hard time, you know, let's say I just pick up a random storybook. I don't know what to pull from that because in my mind, it's incomplete, right? Because I'm taking it from a full story 
And so how right. do I know which, you know, paragraph or which few lines? And maybe I'm misunderstanding your direction anyway. So if you could clarify mm-hmm. and maybe. Sure. Yeah. No, I can, I can understand that. I can understand thinking, okay, well, it's, it's incomplete. Um, however, one of the things is that, you know, there's most families who read a lot develop sort of family isms. So like a, a quote from Pooh Bear or Piglet or something like that. And you could just use the quote. You could also use, there's some beautiful saints quotes that you could use. And it depends too. So the book that we used more than any other book for dictation was a poetry book called, it's a big, thick book. It's about two inches thick. And it has poems of every length, four line poems to four page poems, all geared at children of every age. And they're also done in subject areas. So there's like the animal world and uh, the seasons and you know, things that creep and crawl and the world, you know, like an amazing, um, oh, favorite, favorite poems, old and new. I, I'm not kidding. Mine is completely worn out. Like the copy's worn out and I, it's just such, a, such an important book. And so I would do primarily, unless my kids really wanted to do something other than poetry, we use that book a lot. I would just okay pick something or have them, you most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I just ordered that book. <laughs> Yeah, favorite poems. Well, that's right. it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Elizabeth has brought it up on the screen. So I'll put the, an Amazon link maybe into uh, of that book because it's just it is stellar, and I recommend it every time I do a education workshop. I recommend that as my number one resource. Right? You could also do Bible quotes. There's so there's so much you could do, but that book you could do a dictation that that's just a one day dictation. You could pick a little tiny short poem by Ogden Nash, something funny or silly or whatever. Uh, out of that book, or you could say, would you like to do a poem that will take us a few days? But, you know, read a few poems to your, to your kids, you know, was it, was it, was an event in our house kind of picking out your next dictation poem, right? And so I would say, will you take the book or do you want me to help you? Or do you want to just pick out a poem on your own? And so I might read three or four poems to, to get them to find something that really tickled their fancy that we could do, or uh, I would let them just choose their own. But if they're not really at that stage yet, if they're younger and they're not really at that stage, then I would just, I might pick something funny or something sweet or something that they're really interested in, maybe something about a cat, you know, and then um, I would say, okay, so this one, we're just going to do two lines a day. So we'll do two lines today and two lines tomorrow. And then you just do the poem over several days. So that's kind of a nice way to go about it rather than feeling like you have to pick something incomplete, right? And finish it in one day. Unless, unless you have a child who prefers just to do one thing per day and move on to something else, in which case you're going to pick out a quote or a Bible quote or um, a very, very short poem or, or whatever, right? Okay, shall we move on? Sure. Okay. So this came from a listener. They're wondering when and how should we have our children apologize to each other? Further, what if it isn't sincere is just saying having them say sorry enough or should we I mean I don't know how you can make somebody feel sincere do you but do you understand yeah yeah I understand the question yeah because I struggled this with this myself you know there was times when we sort of said you know it's it's important that you apologize or you hurt somebody or whatever you should apologize but we ultimately came to the conclusion that was what was more important was for our kids to see us apologizing or us saying he's not ready to apologize right now and have it be sincere. You feel really hurt right now. But if you can be patient, you know, when he feels sorry for being unkind or hurting you or whatever, that he's actually going to mean it. 
And so that's, you know, that can be really hard. It can be hard to watch the child who's suffering. It can be hard to watch the smug child who's not ready to apologize. Um, but at the same time, an apology that isn't sincere isn't an apology, really. There's a new book, and I have not read this book, but I have read some of Deborah McNamara's articles on apologizing, on, on sort of making kids say I'm sorry. But she has a new book out called The Sorry Plane. P-L-A-N-E, The Sorry Plane, which I would like to get because I, I have really, really appreciated her commentary on kind of the forcing of kids to apologize. And yeah, should they apologize? Of course they should. Should they apologize when no sorrow is felt seems to me like you're not really going to get anywhere with that. And we're not going to be allowing their conscience to work. And I, you've probably heard me say this before, but one of the things that I really noticed when we don't jump all over our kids for their behavior, for example, say, they, say they're rude to us, okay, which, you know, happens every day or sassy. If you are non-reactive, and by non-reactive, I don't mean <sighs> fine. And by non-reactive, I don't mean that you curl up inside your shell. And I mean non-reactive in the sense that you you don't pounce, you don't retreat, you don't, you might even say, you know, that's a really inappropriate way to speak to me, but you don't demand an apology. You don't jump all over them. You don't build up their defenses. And what we found was that nine times out of 10, the child in very short order would come back without being told, would come back and say, I'm sorry, I talked to you like that, mom. Now, the older they got, sometimes that took longer. They're nursing anger, they're nursing hurt, they're nursing whatever, but they come back and then you know there's a conscience really at work there. How can we let their conscience grow if we're forcing them to say, I'm sorry, which is only leading to deeper anger and deeper resentment, but we force them to say, I'm sorry, are they actually going to come back and make a real apology? Well, they might, but they might not. You know, okay, fine, I've already said that. We're not really allowing their consciences to grow when we force something out of them or when we're really reactive. Don't you dare talk to me like that. If they talk to you like that and you trust that your example of love and tenderness, that doesn't mean you don't talk about it. Maybe a day goes by and they still haven't apologized. They acting as though everything's back to normal. It wouldn't be inappropriate to say, I don't know if you realize how hurtful that was when you spoke to me like that. It seems to me that I would hope you would feel sorry for having been unkind to me or to your sibling, or there would be some sorrow there. And maybe they're going to flare up again. That's, that's sometimes what happens. You can walk away from that. Eventually, they come around. And then the conscience has really had an opportunity to, to actually work and grow and become more adult in its manifestation of its actual sorrow for being unkind. What about for the, the child that like learning disability wise actually doesn't really ever see themselves as having done something wrong? Either they forget right away, because I know that's something with ADD and ADHD. It's that like a second later, they will have no recollection of what has happened, you know? And so how can we teach, mm -hmm. you know, I guess, empathy and being apologetic for right. things when it's just not on their radar? Yeah. You know, it's like a total unawareness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on the circumstances, uh, I'm not really sure how that works. But again, you know, saying I'm sorry, and then the person forgetting completely having forgotten what they were even sorry about this seems sort of fruitless. It would be great material to bring up with them, you know, say at night when they're soft and when they're not angry, you know, nobody's angry or whatever and say, you know, 
Do you remember the interaction that happened between you and your sister earlier today? And maybe they say, no, you know, and maybe they truly don't remember and that's okay. You know, and even, you know, we just have to work with what is right. No. Well, I'm going to tell you what happened because I think that, that she's still feeling really hurt by that and sad by that, you know, and maybe you didn't mean to hurt her, but I just need, you know, I think it's important for us to talk about it. Maybe you didn't realize it was unkind, but I think, you know, your sister loves you and she, she wants things to be good between you and I think she's still feeling really hurt. Let him come to the conclusion of what action needs to be taken from that or say they do remember, then, you know, sit down and have a discussion. You know, that interaction that happened today that everybody was so angry. What was your part in that? You know, how can we prevent that in the future? Do you think we need to talk it out with your sister? You know, because maybe we should do that before we go to bed. Or maybe would you like to do that in the morning? Because I think that there's still some hurt there. The reality is we do hurt each other as human beings. And sometimes those things get repaired and sometimes they don't. Just give you an example of this. Sometimes a parent, you know, as an adult, you're and a parent dies who's hurt you maybe profoundly and deeply. And we don't ever get to extract an apology out of them. Or maybe they're just incapable of of acknowledging their wrongs that they did to you. That's part of the human condition. We sometimes unable to make somebody else feel sorrow for actions that have hurt us. And that's a reality. We have to forgive anyway. And it is one of the things that I think with our kids that he isn't ready to apologize. He doesn't really understand what he did wrong. We can pray for him and we need to forgive him. And I hope that he comes and and expresses his sorrow to you, but I I can't guarantee it or make Mm -hmm. that happen. You know, and so you're working with both parties, right? Right. So then just for clarification, as a parent, just if you could just kind of walk through an altercation Mm -hmm. happens, you know, we'll say middle, middle to primary to middle age, start talking to maybe the guilty party. (laughs) They talk back and get aggressive towards, Mm -hmm. you know, us as a parent. What is the action? Is it you need to go spend time in your room to calm down? You know, you're saying don't be reactive. doesn't mean don't get involved. So first of all, you have to make sure everybody's safe, right? So if there's two people that are at fisticuffs in the middle of the living room, yeah, you got to get in between them, right? And, And nope, no, 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 absolutely not. This does not happen. And that can even be with words sometimes, right? They're, you know, being really hurtful with words. Nope, absolutely not. This does not happen. If you guys have something you're disagreeing about, we can find a way. But when you're just talking like this, we, we're not going to do this right now. Depending, it's so it's so situation dependent and person dependent, right? It's hard to give a sort of a pat answer. You know, say the older child was the aggressor that we have an opportunity to say, this is not, I don't know what it is you want. And I'm going to try and help you find what you want. First of all, I need to make sure your sister is safe. You were saying some really unkind things. So I need you to just take a moment. You don't have to, you know, they can send to the room or not. Like, you know, it depends if that comes across as a punishment or, a, or a, and sometimes, you know, it could be, it could come across one way or the other, right? It could also just be, an, I just need you to take some time, go walk outside. Give, it, sometimes if you give options, it's the best way to avoid it being sort of a punishment. For example, so sometimes if you give options, then the person who's the aggressor doesn't come across so much like you're punishing them for for being angry, but you are giving them options to go cool off. So you can go outside, you can go to your room, you can go listen to some music, give them some options so that, you know, there's a bit of space and I will be with you and give them a, a, a t- you know, I'll be with you in five minutes. I'll be with you in 10 minutes. Or you can come back to me when you're ready to, to talk about this. But right now there's some really hurt feelings here and I need to 
I need to deal with that. So it's such a dance, right? Human relationships are such a dance. So what we're working towards is always keeping the connection open. Our connection with them, if their connection is broken, that's a different piece of the puzzle, you know, and we may or may not be able to help them reconnect. But the best way we can teach them how to want to reconnect with another is by us doing it ourselves for them. So yeah, hopefully it's helpful. I mean, I realize this, there's, it would be nice if there was some formula, but there isn't. <laughs> it's very person and situation dependent. For families who have been doing it the forced apology way, for lack of a better term, can that be, can it be retaught and reimagined in a home with a positive outlook? I think it always can, you know, and I think that depending on the age of kids, I think whatever we've done, if we feel like it's not working or it's led to a bad result or whatever, and we're rethinking it ourselves, I think it can always be reimagined that, for example, say, say that's the situation you've been in, that you've been forcing apologies, that at some point, maybe it's when, at a time when you used to force an apology, that you say, right in that circumstance, say, you know what, I'm not going to make you say I'm sorry. Okay, I would like you to be sorry, because I think that was really hurtful. But I need you to be ready for that. I need you to take that on yourself. And it may take time. They may not right away respond to that. It might take you consistently doing that a few times before the child actually recognizes, okay, they're not actually going to force me to apologize when I'm not ready. So that's one thing. Depending on the age or the personalities of the children, another way might be to sit down with the kids or the older kids and say, I've just come to this place where I feel like making you say I'm sorry is not really helping you to to be sorry if you've misbehaved or or you've hurt somebody, or I just feel like it's wrong uh, for me to be forcing that out of you. And I would like you to be able to come to those places yourself. And I think that I'm actually, you know, as parents, we're maybe preventing that from even happening because we forced you to apologize. And maybe that's even building resentment between us as, as your parents or with your siblings or whatever. I think that we can always dial back but I think when our, especially as the kids get older, the to include them in the conversation, same as punishment, say, you know, I've had this conversation with families over the years, the idea of a family that's say practice spanking, you know, if your kids are older, you feel like that, that this has not been a helpful thing to do in your family to be able to sit them down and say, okay, listen, we've chosen to spank up till now. And over the last, you know, however, whatever period of time, year or two years, whatever, we felt that not only is it not respectful, but it's also made you guys more aggressive or, or whatever, you know, whatever the results that you're, you know, you think you've seen, or whether it's just your own personal take on things that, that just, this just feels wrong, that to be able to say to them, you know, I'm sorry, this was not, I didn't intend to cause harm, or I didn't intend to do something that, that was going to have a negative result. I am feeling convicted that that's the way I want to go. It's it's going to take me time. I'm not quite sure what else to do. But what I know is that I don't want to be spanking you anymore. And so, you know, if you can find find a way to forgive about the you know mistakes I've made, if you can find a way to be patient with me as I learn new ways of handling difficult situations, then let's go there. And I, you know, depending on the kid, I mean, sometimes a 10-year-old can be old enough or a 7-year-old can be old enough to take that in. But only the parent is really the one able to judge whether or not a child is old enough to sort of handle that information or if it's better just coming from experience. You know what? I'm not going to spank you. I realize I have in the past, but I'm not going to. I'm upset with the behavior right now and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get angry at you, but I also don't want to spank you. Just some food for thought. I think we can always change right. things. Well, I think it, it, 
parenting is kind of um, a lesson in learning to give up pride in a lot yeah. of ways, right? And learning how to dance, right? <laughs> Just, you know, okay, each person is different. Yeah. Each circumstance is different. Each family dynamic is different. And we're never going to do it perfectly. So we have to cut ourselves a lot of slack and cut our kids a lot of slack too. So those are great questions. Thank you so much for, for bringing that up. Good to have diverse questions too, from soup to nuts. Okay, well, God bless and have a lovely evening. Thank you. Bye. Okay.